Good morning. Good to see all those pictures. Gary's evidently in a band of some sort. I uh, don't know if you guys realize he was a member of U2 there, but uh, that's pretty impressive that we have people of that caliber playing with us on Sunday mornings. So um, we are returning into our season of foundations. Now, I, I keep holding this little book up, and some of you use it and some of you don't. We're, this is the fourth year in our lectionary, and there's a lot of method behind the way we go through Scripture. Every fall, we go into this season we call Foundations, where we tell the story of the Jewish people, the history of Israel. Uh, year one, we do the book of Genesis. Year two, it's Exodus up until the you know, coming into the promised land. Year three is, is the period of the judges and this kind of time of getting settled. And year four, which is what we're starting now, is the monarchy. So we're, we're, we're picking up where we left off last year at the beginning of Advent with, with Samuel. We were saying goodbye to Samuel. He still shows up this year. Uh, he sticks around like that. But we're going to spend the next eight to ten weeks looking at the monarchy in Israel. In First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and some in Chronicles, um, I, I think it's it's fitting that I've titled this series the, series "The Problem with Kings" because you may have heard there's an election going on somewhere in the world, and uh, we're going to talk about the problem of of these people in leadership, how it's a struggle sometimes for the church to find its way. Um, Saul is this first king that we're going to hit in First Samuel 13 today. Uh, he's won a big battle against the Ammonites, this people that were against them in chapter 11. Uh, Samuel came in chapter 12. This is where we ended off last uh, November uh, and gave kind of his goodbye speech. And now we move into this first story of Saul acting as king in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. So I'm going to read 1 Samuel 13 verses 1 to 15 and then we'll go from there. Saul was 30 years old when he became king. And he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outposts at Geba. And the Philistines heard about it. And then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. And some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, and Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. And Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. 
You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you've not kept the Lord's command. And then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin. And Saul counted the men who were with him and they numbered about 600. Now, it's an unusual story. Uh, it's not the first story you would want of your kingship. In fact, if it happened today, Saul would be sending out uh, his representatives saying, this story is all fake news. It's not real. It didn't really happen that way. Uh, this is not what you want for press when you're starting to be king. And I, I want to start us understanding by, by reconnecting to the narrative. It's important to get the elements of the story. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at this story, and then at the end we'll, we'll apply some of the things to, to us living right here. But there are some things that are, need to be highlighted in the context of what's going on there to help us understand these 15 verses. We're looking at a period of time when the Jews were oppressed by the Philistines, or the Philistines. I say it both ways. I can't ever get my American or Canadian or my Southern statement right. But the Jews are oppressed by the Philistines. Back in chapter 11, Saul has shown his power. He defeated the whole Ammonite army, and it said he had an army of 330,000 soldiers. That's back in chapter 11, just two chapters before. And so then the question is, why did he send 327,000 soldiers home and only keep 3,000, 2,000 with him and 1,000 with his son? This has become his standing army. Why only keep 3,000? And, and most scholars say it's because the Philistines would only allow that. They kind of had their thumb on the Jewish people at this time. It, it, you see in verse 3 that they had an outpost at Geba. It was most likely a small uh, fort or some type of fortification with, with one kind of governor overseeing it. And it was primarily used, they think, for taxation. We'll talk about that in a minute. And if you look down in verse 19, which we didn't read, it says, this is in Israel, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goads. Isn't that funny how they throw in the price? You know, you get the little pricing, what's on the blacksmith shop there. But the point here is, Philistia, these five cities of Philistia are controlling what happens in Israel. The Jews are being oppressed by these. And they wouldn't allow that big of an army. So he's kept this kind of standing army of 3,000. And, and, and they would just kind of take advantage of the Jewish people. And they're getting tired of it. We saw last fall that that's why they wanted the change. And now with Saul, they have a king for the very first time. It says in verse 1, Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Finally, things had changed. We ended up last fall in chapter 8 of, of, of 1 Samuel. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Sam, Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Now they're finally like everybody else. Philistia has, has got their thumb on them, but they can come back, they can do something about it. And it doesn't even start with Saul. It starts with his son, Jonathan, and an event that incites the oppressor. It says in verse 3 and 4, Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. 
And then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul, interesting how Saul takes credit for Jonathan's work. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost and now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines and the people were summoned to join Saul. It, most likely there's this small detachment, like I say at Geba, of Philistines. And Jonathan, even though he didn't have swords and spears, is tired of it. They're, you ever see the old mafia movies where they go into the businesses and they demand protection? right? You, you better pay me or something bad might happen to your, to your business. Well, that's kind of what the Philistines are doing. You better come to this outpost. You better pay your taxes or who knows what's going to happen to your crops. And so Jonathan's tired of it. He's got a thousand men. And even though they don't have swords and shields, swords and, and, and um, spears, they take it over and, 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 and win that back. He'd had enough. And the news gets back to Philistia, and they decide, okay, we're coming after you. So they, they come to where Saul was. Saul retreats to Gilgal, and the Philistines come to Michmash, uh, and he goes back to Gilgal. Now, in this situation, I want you to realize here for just a minute, Saul has 2,000 soldiers, Jonathan has 1,000, and, and the Philistines are coming after him. And the, the text kind of gives you reality from Saul's perspective. Saul had had this major victory in chapter 11, 330,000. I don't what's it like to command an army of 330,000 people, right? And win a big victory and everybody, it kind of solidified his kingship. They proclaimed him, yeah, you're definitely our king. And then very soon thereafter, he's terrified because the Philistines are coming after him. He's got to do something to hold it together. And it doesn't look good. Now, some of you, you've been into office buildings where they have those motivational signs. It's a big, beautiful picture you know, some, a big mountain or somebody rowing their canoe, and then there's one big word there, and then a little motivation. You've seen those motivational statements? Well, my favorite take on that is a, is a company called Demotivators, and they skew those. And I, I think if you had been in Saul's head at this time, this is what you would have seen, some things like this. Uh, ambition. Let's see if that's going to show up. Is that coming through? Ambition. The journey of a thousand miles sometimes ends very, very badly, Right? or mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. <laughs> Futility. This is a good one for me in basketball. You'll always miss 100% of the shots you don't take, and statistically speaking, 99% of the shots that you do. <laughs> problems. <laughs> no matter how great and destructive your problems may seem now, remember, you've probably only seen the tip of them. <laughs> and then my favorite of all time is agony. Not all pain is gain. And I think if you're inside Saul's head, he's sitting there. He's got these 2,000 men with him and 1,000 with his son. He's trying to rally Israel together, and, and he's feeling the pressure. What do I do now? I'm the king. I'm the guy that's supposed to respond to this. My son has gone and started a big, a big uh, conflict, and I have to deal with it. And, and when you look at reality from Saul's perspective, there's some things you see. First, he is extremely outnumbered. It says they have 3,000 chariots. That's one chariot for every soldier that Saul has. And, and just in case you kill all the, the drivers of the chariots, it says they've got 6,000 charioteers. So they've got a replacement for every one of those drivers. And then it says there are, the Philistines have soldiers as numerous as the sands of the seashore. Where have you heard that phrase before? Who is going to have descendants as numerous as the sands? Abraham, right? This is, a, this is almost an, an ironic twist on the fact that here's this Jewish people 
Given by God, numerous as the sands on the seashore, now they're, they're coming against them, somebody that's just as big and powerful. And add this to the fact, the fact that Saul's outnumbered, add to the fact that his troops are fearful and deserting. Look at verse 6 to 8. Um, let me find 6. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in the caves and thickets among the rocks and in the pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited for seven days, a time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. They're terrified. They're running away. And did you catch at the end of the text where we read in verse 15, by the time... It actually happens and Samuel shows up. Saul only has 600 troops left. That's all he's got. All he needs is for Samuel to show up and do the sacrifices and then he can go into battle and Samuel waits and waits and waits. See, Samuel's taking forever from Saul's perspective. Samuel said, go and wait for me seven days. I'll come offer the sacrifices and then you can do it. And he's waiting and he's waiting you ever notice how when you have to wait for something, the fear mounts? They had a, a, a thing at Camp Kakwa, a zip line. You ever ridden a zip line? You climbed up this tree and you sat on this little platform about 40 feet in the air, and then you just jumped off and went zoom, zipped across the field. And it's a lot of fun, but I, I found the longer you sat on that little platform waiting to jump, the harder it got to jump. So I told my kids, when you get up there, as soon as they say go, go, because the longer you wait. The... And, and here's seven days of waiting, knowing they're outnumbered, people being afraid, and Samuel's taking his time. So finally, Saul wakes up on morning number seven. Don't see Samuel. I'm going to go ahead and offer the sacrifices myself. He feels that he's forced to take action. That's what he says. You know, everybody was leaving, and you weren't coming. And, and I felt compelled. The Greek word there means I, I was literally forced. There was no other thing. I didn't have another option, Samuel. I had to do something. And Sam shows up right after he's finished. And he says, you failed the test, Saul. Your kingdom's going to be taken away from you. Now, does anybody else think that's a little bit harsh? Like, let's be honest. Put yourself in Saul's shoes. Can you feel that pressure? Do you think you might have tried anything? I've got to do something. One mistake he made, one that I think we all can find ourselves doing, and God says your kingdom's going to be taken away from you. Doesn't seem very gracious. But the story's showing something to all of us. It's See, Saul's vision of reality, the way he saw the world, made him feel forced that he had to do something. And Samuel had said, wait for me seven days, I'll come, I'll offer the sacrifice, and then you'll go. See, the point of the story is to illustrate what Saul forgot about reality. And I find the hardest part of the spiritual life for me is to remember what is really true when everything looks otherwise. Right? To remember who it is that holds me, who it is that protects me, who it is that's walking with me when the world and my situation looks different. We often forget what the true reality is. See, Saul made the same mistakes that I'm sure I would have made in his position. But his bad example gives us some insight on how to react differently. See, the job of the king in Israel was to act out a visible trust of God. You were God's representative to the people. And, and one of the things that Saul forgot was that there is only one king of Israel. There's only one king of Israel. 
In verse 13, Samuel says, you've acted foolishly. You've not connect, kept the command the Lord your God gave you. The whole point of Israel was it's a theocracy. They've got one king, and it's God. Now, Saul is the earthly king, but his whole job is to represent the one king, the true king of Israel. The way he found success was in being obedient. That's why Saul says, you, you didn't obey the command of the Lord your God. You've all seen news stories. Well, I think we all have. You know, somebody's up in a little twin engine plane and they're flying and the pilot has a stroke or passes out or a heart attack and they're freaking out because they don't know how to land the plane and somebody from, they put on the headset, somebody from the tower says, okay, do this and push this button and light and they land the plane. I mean, you've seen news stories like that, right? That's the perfect example of being a king in Israel. You're doing stuff, but it's the direction of the tower. God is actually helping you be the king. The job of the king of Israel was not to protect the people. It was not to win the battle. It was not to keep them from being scared. It was to follow the direction of the true king of Israel. That was his job. It was, what, it was to remember what you and I need to remember on our own spiritual journey, that success does not depend upon us. You see where Samuel reprimanded, him for the, reprimanded Saul and said, the soldier, why? Saul, the soldier shouldn't be afraid. Do you see that in the text? No, you didn't see that in the text. Because Samuel didn't say, you're a horrible king. You've only got 600 soldiers. You, how, what are you trying to do, Saul? You're the worst leader ever. Samuel doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Samuel, why, why have you gotten us in such a mess with the Philistines? I can't believe you did that. You've really blown it. He doesn't say they're all so scared. He doesn't even criticize Saul for doing the sacrifices. He says, you've not kept the command of the Lord your God. You've not taken direction from him. Wait seven days until I show up. Wait. And if you'd done that, God would have established your kingdom. But now, now he's taking it away. He's saying, Saul's success does not depend upon you. You know, when, when uh, Angela and I were called here as pastoral couple about 8,000 years ago, feels like sometimes, 21 years ago, um, I was laughing because to extend a call, the membership has to vote in the church and 75% of the membership have to want you to come before you can say, yes, I want to come. And uh, Angela and I had prayed about it and I thought, okay, you know what? If 90% say yes, I'll come. But I really hope 95% will say yes. And I got a phone call from John Corbett and uh, he said, well, we, we want to issue you a call. I said, great. What, what were the numbers, John? And it got quiet for a minute. And John said, well, um, 76%. And I thought, oh my goodness. So if one person had voted against us, you wouldn't even be able to issue this call, right? And John said, yeah. And I said, well, I, I'm going to have to think about that <laughs> a little bit, right? I mean, it, it doesn't sound too bad. It only means 25% of the people didn't want me here. You know, <laughs> one out of every four. I didn't come. I promised for the first six months I wasn't saying, was it you? Was it you? Was it you? But Angela and I went away, and for three days we prayed. We didn't talk about it for three days. And I can still remember driving down the road in Port Coquitlam when we finally decided, okay, we're going to talk about this now. And, and I had come to the conclusion, and she had come to the conclusion, both of us, that we had to come regardless. And, her, and she said exactly what I'd been thinking. Even if we go and the church falls apart, we really believe God's calling us. And, and believe me, I came, that gave me a lot of... A lot of peace, because I thought, even if I mess up, I feel like I'm supposed to go. 
And I came, and you guys have kept me for 21 years. I don't know if it's because you don't want to look anymore or what, but um, I'm still here. Still I'm still messing up. That's right. <laughs> but, but the whole idea was there was freedom in the fact that that success didn't depend. It, I was supposed to go. And I think in the spiritual life, that's something we need to realize. Success is not dependent upon us. We don't have to make things work. We don't have to get it right. We have to be obedient to God. Saul was worried about image. He was, he was afraid of being seen as passive and fearful. He wanted to take action. If, if he didn't take action, how could he be a successful king? You see, God's defining success very differently there. Our, our role is not to make sure that we succeed. Our role is trust and obedience. Saul, if you just waited, God would have done what needed to be done, but you, you couldn't wait. You couldn't rest, Saul. You couldn't trust that the true king over Israel had this covered. We got to have that old hymn, Trust and Obey, right? So easy to sing and so difficult to do. To actually just wait and realize that God's the one doing the stuff here. You know, so often we feel that Christianity is only about taking action. We feel lost in a world that's, that's, that's losing its moral anchors. We're afraid of what lies ahead. Somebody has to do something. We can't just let it go on like this. What if, what if, what if this, what if that? Saul must have felt that very way. And God said, your actions were foolish. You know, our world feels like it's falling apart. And we've got we to do something. We've got to take action. We've got to change it. We've got to make it better we've got we we take on all this responsibility instead of trust and obedience realizing that there's a king so in this world i'm not saying that that it's it's unusual to feel that desire to do something and to fix the world or to fix a situation but the question is what are we actually called to do right now how how are we going to apply then to now for us in the GBC family. How do we apply that? You know, this is the week of the year when we always have the family meeting. September and January, we have a, a sermon we kind of pull away from the lecture and we talk specifically about what it is we're doing here as a church and why we're doing it. And we're not all here, obviously, today. Some of you are online, some of you are here. But I, I do want to talk about how does this relate to what we actually do, especially in a time like this with COVID, Right? It, it says in Romans 15, 4, I come back to this all the time. This is the reason I still preach the Bible. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This story has something to say to us. And I, I think there's three things that the text stresses to us. And I, I want to look at the three things. And in one of them, you'll see how specifically I think it relates to us right here at Grace. Here's what we need to remember. The truth about reality, regardless of what CNN and Fox News says reality is. This is the truth about it. First of all, despite the chaos, there is a king. Something we need to begin each day confident of. Despite the chaos in the world, despite the chaos in our situation, in our family, there's a king. There's somebody in charge. Scripture is very clear. In Psalm 2, it talks about the kings of the earth. They get all upset Right? They, they rage against God, and in Psalm 2, verse 6, God says, I have installed my king in Zion, 
on Zion, my holy hill. Jesus, in, talking about Jesus in Philippians 2 and, and him coming to earth, and it says, because of all these things that he did, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. This is past tense. It doesn't say, therefore God will exalt him. It says God exalted him. There already is a king that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not will be Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And we, we went through that little light book of Revelation a while ago. You remember in chapter 5 when John's weeping because there's this scroll and nobody can open it. And it says, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Where is it? Standing in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. There is a king, and he is on the throne right now, despite the chaos you see. Now, some of the things I, f I hear and some of the things I see that people post on social media make me think maybe as Christians we've forgotten this. People say things, well, what's going to happen to the church if this person gets into power? What's going to happen to the church if this law passes? Oh, my goodness, I'm afraid for the future of the church. What's going to happen if this practice continues? And I'm, <laughs> there's a king. There is a king. Do not fear. If you find yourself overwhelmed with fear and anxiety with the state of the world, there's a good chance you might have forgotten that there is a king on the throne. It may not look that way, but it's true. That's why they call it faith. It may not look that way, but it's true. And if there is a king that can be trusted, then what we need to do is seek obedient trust over success. One of the things we have to realize is that we don't even know what success looks like. We think we do. We think we understand what it looks like to be a successful Christian. Somebody who trusts God. Remember, Jake just spent two weeks talking about Job, this righteous man who trusted God, and his life did not look very successful. And his three friends kept saying, it's not successful. Look, you, you, you've obviously sinned. And they were all wrong. See, success for us is trust and obey. So many examples of that in Scripture. Esther, right? Esther's whole uh, nation of the Jews are going to be um, ethnically cleansed. And she says to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, when I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther's saying, I don't know if I'll be successful, but I have to do this. Calling of Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 2. Just listen to what God says. God says to Ezekiel, the people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. That's not the answer I got from prayer when I was called to come here. They, God did not tell me that. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, and whether they listen, Ezekiel, or fail to listen, either way, for they're a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid Though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions, do not be afraid of what they say or be terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they're rebellious. 
But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Another example of God saying, you may not be successful from your vantage point. You're to trust. You're to be obedient. Remember the martyrs of the early church. Back to Revelation again, 12, 11. They overcame him. The martyrs, they're dead. Did it look like they were successful? No, not from our vantage point. But the scripture about them says they overcame him, the evil one, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. See, the goal was to be obedient, not to be successful. What does that look like here? I'm glad you asked. And this is where we get to the family meeting part, and I'm going to review something really basic. We, we say that our, our mission is to help people take one step closer to Jesus. That's what we want to do. And the reason we want to do that is our vision. We want to see lives renewed and a community transformed by the power of the gospel. That's all on the bulletin board out there. But what does that look like specifically? What is that calling us to right now? How do I do that? How do I live in obedient trust right now? And that's where we talk about what I'm going to call today the four commitments during COVID. We have these four commitments that we focus on. And we say this is where we obediently trust and leave the success to God. One is worship. One of the key things that we are called to do is to worship together. Weekly, to come together here in this room or online, however you come, and to remember the truth about reality as it really is. You know what we did this morning? We came and we, we remembered that God is with us, forever God is with us. And then we confessed our sin. We, we, Mark gave us beautiful words to, to share our hearts with God. And then we remembered that God is faithful to forgive our sin. And we declared what we believed. Now we've opened our hearts to the word and we're going to close with the song of response. What we're doing every week is a rhythm that shapes us. It's, it, does it look successful? Well, I, my attendance numbers right now are not great, right? If you want to do it that way, it doesn't look necessarily successful. We're not the loudest singing crowd with our masks on. All the, temporary, or all the, 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 the contemporary ideas of success may not be being met, but it, we're, we're obedient. We're trusting that if we come here and we do this, that God will be faithful. This week, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I think it's okay for me to share. This week I helped as Chris Bryan transitioned from being in home to being in care. It's a hard transition, very, very hard. Uh, and Chris is a man who his whole life has liked to be, he's, he's brilliant. He's liked, to be, he's liked to know what's going on and, and, and been self, self-reliant. And he's had to let all that go. And what I've seen in him during this incredibly hard transition is an, is an incredible graciousness and a willingness to trust God even when he's not in control. And as I was talking with Pauline, she was reiterating what she's seeing in Chris as he moves into this different, it's a necessary stage of life for him to be cared for, but a difficult one. And she said, you know, when we sing those songs in church, it's so easy to sing those songs. I surrender all. Blessed be your name. You give and take away. We sing those things out. But she said, when the moment hits, it's very hard. I said, yeah, but that's why we come together and sing it, because we're practicing. All to Jesus I surrender, so that when the moment comes, there's something embedded deep in your psyche from weeks and weeks and weeks of surrender in worship to say, okay, even now. That's what we do. That's why it's important to make that commitment. A second one's relationships. Now, this is, this is hard. 
during COVID. As a church, we try to facilitate this, uh, and it's very hard right now. Like, there's opportunities for you to connect through, through our adult learning things and through worship, and, but, but you're going to have to reach out on this one. Relationships, churches are supposed to function with everybody caring for each other. The way a lot of times they function is depending on the pastoral staff to take care of the people who really need help. The reality is Jake and I can't do that as well now. We need as a church to care for each other. And we need as a church to make connections with other people who, that we're honest about our own spiritual life. See, far too often I see people pull away from relationships when they're going a direction that's not healthy for them because they don't want to hear what's not healthy for them. They pull away. And I, I'm just saying one of the ways we're obedient and trust is that we pull into relationships and, and like I say, at this point in the game, that's something you guys are going to have to put some effort into and some investment into because we can't facilitate that as easily as we usually do. Learning. Today we, we've, we've put out the information about the learning opportunities coming up for adults. There's, I actually photocopied some and they're on the table by the door as you leave if you want a, a hard copy. But, but during this time, one of the ways you're obedient and you trust is you, you take in and you learn and you grow in your faith. There's opportunities to do that. And last of all, mission. This is where it all comes together. And also one of those things in, in COVID that you've got to kind of discern. We can encourage you. But what is it God's called me to? Who's he put in my circle? Who am I to reach out to? Who am I to lift up? Who am I to encourage? How can I be obedient and trust? I can do it by, by evaluating my life in light of these four commitments that we're called to make. You see, as, as you do this, you'll learn, I think, what Saul missed. That through all the things that happen, good, bad, ugly, otherwise, through all the things that happen, God is shaping people, not events. Now, I don't mean God didn't care about the, the event of the Philistines there. Right? I, I, I think God does shape events. But in this situation, Saul wanted victory and God wanted Saul. Do you see the difference there? God's primary concern was not defeating the Philistines. He knew he could do that. God's focus was teaching Saul to be the kind of king that trusts. And see, God wants you. Success for God is you being shaped into the image of Jesus. Like it says in Romans 8, 29 and 30. We read that this morning. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. Don't let that word throw you off to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Theologically, he's saying, God chose you to look like Jesus. He wants to shape you. And the events that come your way, if you can be obedient, if you can trust, if you can rest in the fact that there is a king on the throne, God will shape you to look like Jesus. Remember that despite the chaos you see in the media, there is one king, and he's secure on the throne. And that your job is not success from your vantage point as much as it is trust and obedience. And one of the ways you can live that out is, is focusing in on these four commitments that we focus in on as a church. And then through that, let God shape you. And it may take some waiting. It may take more than seven days for you to wait to see what God's going to do in this situation that's hanging over your head. But He is at work. And if we can be obedient and trust, He will make things happen. Israel made it just fine, despite Saul's disobedience, despite the disobedience we're going to see over the next eight to ten weeks, despite the struggle and the problems with kings, God 
used Israel to bring Jesus to change the entire world. And he can use whatever situation you're facing. As we look at it, it it's overwhelming because it just seems like the only thing we can see. And, and I guess my hope for you in that is you can remember there's a king on the throne. Your job is to be obedient and to trust and to let God shape you first. And as he shapes you, he'll shape the event around you. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for these stories. It seems like such a long time ago in a way different context. But we do identify with the fear. We identify with the concern. We identify with worrying about tomorrow and what the world's going to look like. And I pray that in these situations, God, you can allow us to wait, to trust that you are doing things in us, to take action where we can take action, but not to take on the responsibility for success, but to leave that at your feet. Help us to trust. And God, I pray that as we live in obedient trust, that you would shine through us to the world around us, that people would see in us a peace and a rest that draws them to you. It gives them a hunger to know Jesus. Use this church, use the, the believers in this community of hope as a way of showing your light to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. One of our biggest problems is we tend to finish the sentence for God. You ever have a person that finishes your sentences, you say something and they, they, they think they know what you're saying and so they jump ahead of you. We tend to look at the situation and decide how it should turn out and we finish the sentence for God. And one of these things about COVID that's been amazing to me and it's something I struggle with every day is seeing it as a gift instead of as a hindrance. Seeing the fact that we're limited in the way we do church together as a gift instead of a hindrance. Because I, I want us all together. I want us in the same room. I want us shaking hands and, and hugging each other. And, and for some reason, God says, no, not right now. But as you begin to look at it as a gift, you realize he does things in us. And I'm seeing how he's shaping, how he is helping people connect with each other. He is teaching us different things about what it means to be the church when we don't have Sunday morning to rally around. And, and I think if we can realize that the events that face us are more about shaping us to be the people God wants us to be, shaping us to be like Jesus and receive those events, those circumstances as gifts, even though they're painful gifts, and allow that to shape us, that is where he becomes successful from God's standpoint. He makes us to be like Christ. That's his purpose. That's what he wants to do. And my, my prayer for you this week is that you can welcome that instead of fighting against it. God bless. Amen.